You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Now, what is Go Wild? Go Wild is the fastest growing and most active app for hunters, anglers, and outdoor enthusiasts. There's literally thousands of people joining a week. And unlike most major social media platforms that have strict anti-hunting and anti-firearm policies, that's not the case with uh, Go Wild. Now, Go Wild was designed for hunters, anglers, and outdoor enthusiasts by hunters and anglers and outdoor enthusiasts so that's where you're going to get the connection the first thing we want you to do is go to wherever you download your apps for your smartphone search for go wild download it play around with it and then let us know what you think Welcome to another Land of Legacy podcast. This is your host, Matt and Adam, right here on Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. We have another edition of the Habitat Heroes podcast. We're going to have to make shirts with that slogan. and People uh, are going to like it. I think so. People are gonna wear, would you guys wear We're that? not going to give away the other one yet. Um, no. But do we do yet. have a couple. I hope you guys are staying tuned to our social media pages, Land and Legacy on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, check it out because we did have one minor setback on the apparel. Oh, uh, yeah, a little bit of a delay. But it's coming very soon, we promise you. We already have the prototypes. I think you're going to love them. Yeah, they're, it's funny. No, they're, they're, actually, they're like, you guys told us that in turkey season. Yeah, We did. We oh! did. Um, work in progress. Everything, what do we, what do we say? It takes, takes time, time to, to make, make wine. wine. And I think... I have not, and I know you will agree, have shared the pictures, the prototypes of these hats to anybody who hasn't just immediately jaw-dropped, I love them. I'm going to have to get one of each of them. Yep. And people are like, oh, show me the picture now. Sorry, can't quite do it. Can't quite do it. But they are in production and will be revealed soon. Soon, soon, soon. But man alive, do they look sweet. They look good. I wore that. I can't even get that away. <laughs> I wore the bleh, bleh, bleh yeah. one out. Uh, the, the one we didn't like yeah, at first. Yeah, hat style we didn't like. The and colors. then I wore it out, and that's my favorite one now. Wow. I'm like, man, who would have thought? And it's different. When you get in in person, you know, put it on, it's like, you know what? This, this looks sharp. And they all do. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing seeing them on their website, which is, again, getting ready to get released. I think we've said that, too. People are like, you guys are liars. I'll see that in 2019. But for real, for real. Um, anyhow, we've got a good podcast this week. And so this podcast will be releasing in September, like the first week of September. That's right. So Dan Johnson put our backs against the wall, made us do three podcasts in one day. You know, we're not bitter about it or anything. Yeah, we're just knocking out some Because content. he said he was going elk hunting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. I wish him luck. I, and the only, the only thing I say is, Dan, if you are successful, all I ask is for a steak. That's just it. send me an elk steak. And you won't have to hear about this from us again. We'll be good. Or just uh, two pounds of, of ground elk. We'll, we'll be solid. Um, <clears throat> but it's game time. I mean, it is September, early, early September, and season is here. 
We're ready to rock and roll. And last week on the podcast, we talked a lot about the monoculture mindset and the management and the harvesting objectives for a season and how they can and possibly should develop into a larger encompassing um, mindset so we don't have bad populations, this and that. And that honestly leads directly into a portion of this week's podcast when we talk about can you control or answer the question, can you control the genetics of a deer herd, a wild free-ranging deer herd, by hunting them and selecting to harvest culling inferior bucks? And we're we're debunking it. We're we're talking about this myth. Because my gosh, can you remember the first time you heard that phrase? Culling? Yeah. Like, you know, hey, you know, people talking about it at a camp or whatever it may be, or, you know. During season, out of season, well, I shot him twenty I, years ago. Probably. I shot him because he ain't ever going to amount to much. Or... Heck, I used it as a, <laughs> as a teenager. I yeah. shot a year and a half old buck, and I said, "He's got a big old body on him." I, shoot, I think he's a cold buck. That gun like, cold buck. Oh come on, man! I yeah. laugh thinking about that. Rattled him up, used the buck roar. Yeah, and uh, and he came up, and I thought, "Wow, I'm going to shoot him." I shot him. I brought him down, and everybody's looking at him. I thought, yeah, look at how big his body is. I, I mean, he could be a year and a half old, but I really think he's older than that. He's probably a coal buck. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Probably for. so. But, you know, it's one of those phrases that gets thrown out there. But I think part of this Habitat Heroes podcast, though, is is honestly part of our, I don't know, unwritten duty is to, I don't settle the score. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but... Bring up these old myths that just float around camps and talk about the science behind it because it's out there. And a lot of other people do talk about it, maybe not in a in a pad, podcast, you know, situation where it can just be blasted out, shared and, and whatever, but I think it's important for us to talk about when as you're going into season, what's your mindset when when you're making these harvest suggestions or you're looking through trail cameras right now developing a hit list? Is, yeah. it, is it this goofy-looking two-and-a-half-year-old that you're like, I don't know what happened to his antlers, but I'll be danged if I'm going to let him breed and make it till November. When he comes by October 1, he's getting narrow because his his antlers are crappy. He's a coal buck. He's got this goofy thing, and I don't like non-typicals. I like typicals. Get him out of the gene pool. Oh, that's it. That's the one. That's I don't know. You know, every every region's got its phrases, and um, that was ours. I I heard that one back east too. I was like, I didn't want him in the gene pool no more. And it's like, okay. Well, I mean, I in in essence though, that worked. Like he's not reproduced anymore because you killed him. But what's the weight of that? Like, would it have made a difference, though? Like, you you really did remove him from the gene pool. I get that. But what, in essence, makes a deer have suspe- you know, specific antlers? And are you doing anything by controlling that one deer? Are you making the deer that you see down the road on your specific property, are you making them different by harvesting that one deer? And that's what today is all about and gosh how many times do we we say this for i'm sure people are like you you're funny because all you guys do is talk about these phrases that all these other people use and we have our own phrases that i'm sure we get made fun of but number one i'm sure they would probably say is we always say manage for a diverse habitat and let the rest take care of itself oh say it all the time Manage for a diverse habitat and let the rest run its course. Make your harvest decisions based on age, not on just antler characteristics. Yeah. Or your goals, your personal or your goals. goals. Correct, and that varies throughout every age. Um, yeah, you just every confused stage. everybody. <laughs> I know. From every- last week's <laughs> podcast, shoot what makes you happy. This week, yeah. Matt's saying, shoot it on, yeah. make them on age. That's Make your harvest decisions based on what makes you happy. And if you're to a certain degree and you want to manage for mature deer, shoot mature deer. That's it. And and let the rest run its course. And and why we say that, and and there's three 
significant reasons why you can't control genes, genetics, by Cullen Deer. Ready for no- numero uno? Yeah, let's hear it. You're a little distracted over there. Yeah. You're playing with, We're playing three, with the new toy. Three, week, three podcasts in, man. This is two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> I've never sat in one place for two and a half hours in my grown-up life ever. Except for hunting. Except for hunting. Except for a tree stand. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, let's just state the obvious, though. Does they contribute 50% of the genes that That's it. offspring get. Like, we can't slice it. We can't look at it any other way. Um, no matter what, <clears throat> a doe is contributing 50%. And we don't know the genes that <clears throat> a doe is carrying. We can't physically see because they don't grow antlers. We don't know what technically she's passing on because she does have an impact on the genes of, of antlers. So if she can't express it, then we're already 50% out of that equation, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. we have no control of who breeds who in a wild free range situation. And no matter what, 50% is is, is determined by a doe that we don't know what she's passing it's on. The Good, bad, or ugly, right? The unseen. So That's already, the big, one of the biggest problems in life is trying to see the unseen. Yeah. And we can't see the genetics of a doe. That's right. That's right. So... Right off the bat, we're already behind the eight ball if we if we try and play that game. Okay? Number two, the most significant reason, 70% of yearling bucks disperse from their birth range. So let's say you've got this good age structure on your property and you've got, you know, a couple just dandy deer that you think are doing the majority of breeding on your property – and then you see fawns the next year. Well, then the next year, as those button bucks mature into yearlings, hey, guess what? 70% of those are gone. They're leaving. They're just they're leaving their birth range. So they're not even on your property. So right now we've determined that, okay, you don't, right out the gate, 50% of the does, I mean, 50% of the genetics come from the doe. So you don't get to decide any of that. You don't see what happens. And then on top of that, 70% of the fawns, buck fawns, are dispersing and That's leaving right. your area. So and they're not you, just leaving the air. Like, they're not just crossing the fence on the neighbor. It's five averaging five to seven miles. One study showed uh, buck dispersal. And, and range and habitat type determines this. But generally, it's five to seven miles. But one, one buck fawn... Moved 131 miles. <laughs> Say what? That's crazy. So yeah. we we then where what state was that? I'm not 100 percent certain, but I know one individual from uh, a dif- a different study. I believe it was Nebraska was over 100 miles. Just Isn't that crazy? Flat out just took off walking. Just said I'm gone. I'm leaving. But on average, five to seven miles. Yeah, that's on a, I mean, that's a pretty good lick. That that would be yeah. like a deer on my family farm going half. Going halfway to town. Yeah, exactly. It's like that's a pretty good lick. That's a good. How, a good how often you're not going to see it during hunting season, most ha- likely. No, and how often do <laughs> I get a mature buck on my camera that, and I can call my neighbor five to seven miles away and say, mm-hmm. "You got him too." Like, yeah, it's yeah. not like they have that big of a range on on average. Typically, right. right. Um, yeah, for sure. I, and I think that's important. Now, what was that? That was a can of worms. Oh, that's one of the biggest things with CWD and people are like, well, why are they shooting all the young bucks? They're killing the age structure. Well, some of their theories is the fact of if CWD is in an area and you have infected your naffel bucks, they're carrying that disease Mm -hmm. could be five to seven miles away. That's where there's containment areas. And so they're basically they're killing out those that the a lot of the deer in those containment areas to try and stop the spread. That's the reason for the the big killings. Well, trying we've to kill got to look at the biology of the deer to understand <sighs> the best way to attack it. And then the same thing with the genetics, though. Too, we have to understand the biology and what happens on a yearly basis to to determine even if we're, we're going to have an impact. And so far, number one, I'd be like, if I if I read number one, I'd be like, okay, fifty percent. It's a wild, free ranging deer. There's probably no way this is going to happen. But number two like takes it home, drives the nail in the coffin even deeper is 70% of the deer, the fawns that get born on your property 
Uh, they're gone. 70% of the bucks, right? I, I'm sorry. I said fawns. Yes, yeah, 70% yes. of the buck fawns, they're gone. So those genes that you're trying to harness and capture and breed, if you will, or select for on your property, they're leaving. Yeah. And you don't get to control who stays or who goes. So you might have another buck fawn from a farm that, I don't know, says, oh, if it's brown, it's down. They don't control their genetics or do whatever you think you're doing. And it comes to your farm. Well, guess what? Now you start back at square one. You don't know what the genes are that that buck is carrying. <laughs> but that's why we said Isn't it silly? But that's I, why I think it's so funny when people use the word coal buck and you start throwing out numbers like this. And it's like, <laughs> you don't have a snowball's chance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wish in one hand. And- yeah. Yeah. And it's do like, something else in the other and see which one feels up first. Like That's right. It, it's it's so hard. It'd be like, all right, hey, hey, so-and-so. Like hitting so. the lottery. Yeah, hitting the lottery or go outside and, I don't I don't know, like try to shoot in the sky and knock down a, a goose with a 270 as they're migrating overhead. Like, you're not – the chance of doing it is so almost – un Yeah, it's it's – you can't do it, basically. And, and so we we don't know what's leaving. Or, or let's just say you think what's leaving your farm is really good, but you don't get to control the quality that comes to your farm from surrounding areas. So you're, you're again, back to square one. So that's where we talk about that phrase that, that we always say, manage your habitat for diversity, make it as good as you can, and then hopefully the best deer – well, pick this your spot, your farm, because it's the most attractive. Stop and stay and become a resident, right? That's it. And if they're subdominant, maybe they'll move on. I don't. We don't really know. But if they stop and stay, we know that we're attracting the most deer from a greater area around us. And if we have the most deer, again, this is just a numbers game, one or hopefully more of them are going to be of the quality that you're looking for. When they grow up to get to the age class that you're wanting deer to reach before you harvest them. That's it. Yep. So the more, the merrier. The better the habitat, the more you're going to have, the better chance of having a higher, if you will, quality genetic buck on your Yeah, a higher average. Yes. Yes. So uh, on average, for every 10 bucks you kill over the course of however many years, the average is 150. Boy, wouldn't that be awesome. Yeah, right. Rather than 120 or 125. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, you brought up an interesting thing right there when you mentioned it. And we talked about it with Seth Harker on last week's hunting podcast about the submissive or the subdominant buck. Yeah. And the genetics of that and how coaling. We're, 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 we're talking about genetics as a, not necessarily as a um, phenotype, as an expression of yes. colors, but as an expression of their personality. Their attitude. Yep. I'm saying it more on. Um, when we're, what is your definition of coal? Cause I think a lot of times this gets messed up when people say I'm shooting a coal buck. And most of the time people are talking about a buck who has smaller antlers, inferior antlers. Oh, he's a, he's a mature deer or seems to be a mature deer, but he's 110 inches, 115 Mm -hmm. inches. And, but to us, we like to shoot mature deer, not really on antler size, just mm-hmm. the fact of the challenge of trying to harvest a mature deer. So shooting a 110 or 115 mature deer doesn't bother me at all. Um, but the whole culling of those, for us, if we're shooting a deer of that size, it's more to shoot a mature deer or the fact that he's a very dominant, he's a bully buck, and we're trying to remove him or cull him from the herd. So some of your bigger deer, or if you have a bigger antler buck who's subdominant and he's not as aggressive, he'll feel comfortable living there without having to run into short dog. That's one of the bucks on our farm that's a very small rack, 10-pointer, but he's, he's very like, mature. He would be the prime example or the prime candidate if we were to believe in culling deer to change the quality of antlers down the road in the future. Yeah. He'd been gone. Yeah. If we could have killed him, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if we, we didn't see him, him yeah. but he yeah. would be a target that would we would say, you know what, no, you're gone, out of here, yep. 
I think that's very important. What's the third one? So number three is, and this is the most obvious one, and everyone can relate to this, whether they believe studies and deer science and this and that. Hey, how many times have you been hunting the rut and seen a buck that you've never seen before? They're taking excursions themselves, whether you see it in person or on your trail camera. What are they doing during the rut? They are breeding. They are mixing of the gene pool from deer that you've never, ever seen before. So they're spreading their genes that way too. Good, bad, or ugly, whether you like them or not, bucks disperse and they disperse during the rut and share genes that way as well. So I guess we're not taking a whole lot of time on this because we don't want to just beat this into the dirt because it's that clear. Science tells us you can't do it. I mean, we we sat down at QDMA, Adam, this year, and um, gentlemen shared how intensely they tried to prove this, or they they really they're skeptical at the beginning of the of the the study, but then they went and did it so intensely that they thought there might have been a chance to see a change in the antler quality, um, but they were killing tons and tons of deer over an eighteen year period in a very controlled environment and it didn't work the quality did not change the average did not come up in controlled environments so we can't sit here as hunters and continue that i don't know wise tale of oh i shot him or use the excuse anymore hey that's where does that harvest make you happy does it does it excite you did it get your blood pumping if so, that's my, great. that's what decides on if I shoot a deer or not. Right here. Yep. That wasn't a turkey flying up either. It was heartbeat. <laughs> the rush, the pitter patter. That's that why was we more shoot pitter patter. <laughs> that's why we shoot three and a half year old bucks if if they're on the farm. Like it, it's not a problem for us to to shoot a deer that's three and a half and say, man, I shot a three and a half year old. Sticker eight was three and a half year old, but man, he was. I sure had a lot of fun shooting that deer. Yeah. I think probably the past two deer in Kansas I've shot have been three and a half. Yeah. In the past two years. It's like, you know what? Did I enjoy it? And the only thing that that would change is knowing that it's three and a half or four and a half after I shot it. That's the only thing. It doesn't change my experience. I mean, it is what it is, but it don't hurt hurt me any. So it's like the hunt was the hunt. That's it. Three and a half year old. The last push, thing pushed deer out of the field, nudged does around, came in, checked scrapes, did everything you want to do or experience in an early November hunt. And for me to not enjoy that would be, I wouldn't be a hunter at that point. I have to question my own sanity. So. And the last thing we want to do is shoot a buck and then feel ashamed about it because we pulled a jawbone and we're like, uh oh. He yep. wasn't of the age I was looking for. I need a boo-boo. Uh-oh. And you want to talk about, in, let's say, an inferior, non-typical? The Joker had three main beams. In a situation years ago, he probably would have been shot and ne- never would have had that experience. But because he thought, someone may have thought that he was an inferior deer. Um, but again, with all this being said is, hopefully with the science behind everything, we can just put it to rest and, and stop using the spot spreading the theories or the, the wise tale of, you know, we're going to make a difference or we're going to make an impact on the deer herd. We're not going to. And thank goodness that we don't, honestly. If we, if we had, if God said it from the beginning of creation, I'm going to give that responsibility to man, we wouldn't have any deer or anything like that. Uh, oh, if he gave us point. that power, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, right. We have been screwed a long time ago. He didn't. He didn't give us much power in that. In that, a lot of this, but we still try to play that card. We do. Like the last podcast we did, we talked about. We talk about it a lot because it's like I'm planting this it's food. Asinine is what it is. I want to plant this food for this for this animal. Um, oh, dang it. Not, like I saw, planted this sunflower field for the doves, but the goldfinches ate all of it. What can I do to control the goldfinches? What? You're trying to play? You're trying to play God. Yeah. Uh, what was I, the, what was the I pr- planted this crop for the deer, 
and now the coyotes come and, and they killed a couple of deer. What can I do to kill all the coyotes so I'm the one who gets to control the population? Yeah. <laughs> I'm the man. It kills me. And that's that's what we talked about last week, though, too, is having this understanding of what happens when when you are harvesting deer. The overall objective, you know, it, if you have that monoculture mindset, you're going to be disappointed at some point. We've got to take this bigger, broader idea of going into this hunting season, you're not going to control the genetics of the property. You're not going to control them of the future deer um, by harvesting an inferior buck. And and you better have a good understanding of the deer and doe numbers on a property because uh, we covered that last week. We don't need to beat that bush again. <clears throat> Anyhow, That's right. We don't need to beat that bush again. What... What's the other topic here we've So got? that was the first part of the podcast. Second part of the podcast is as we're coming into deer season, um, hopefully if you've hung on with us from now, what is this, podcast? 80. 80. If you've hung along with us for po- for 80 podcasts, which I know a lot of you have, you've kind of seen this, you probably have developed or hopefully we've just fueled your fire. That's that's our biggest thing. Hopefully we've inspired you to look at the land in a different light than just how can I kill mature deer. And because of that, now we're getting ready for deer season. And it's time to start enjoying the labor of, of our, I guess, enjoying the fruits of our labor. Yeah. And trying to enjoy the the work that we've done throughout the year during hunting season because that's frankly we got addicted on the land because of the the joy of hunting but now we want to make our hunting better so we got addicted on improving the land but it comes down to deer season it's time to sit back relax and enjoy the fruits of our labor that's right what can we look for or what do we do during this time to sit back and observe. To me, I think of we've taken the team, we've coached our team all off season or all all summer long, let's say, all spring and summer, and we've got them to where we're ready to make a run. And once you get to the games, it's kind of hard to really change a lot of what's been there. It's the more up, you're, you're trying up, to now yeah. just a little bit monitor and see what's going on tweaking stuff you're tweaking so here we are tweaking during hunting season are you saying we're tweakers yeah we're tweakers (laughs) so it is deer season but we're land managers how can we still make our time in the tree stand very beneficial to land so the second half of this podcast is what we can look for what we're what we're observing um, and this is specifically what Matt and I are doing while we're hunting this fall of, oh, and what we're trying to learn so we can improve on it this next off season to get ready for next year. Which I think it was, I'm getting all these podcasts mixed up that we've done tonight, but the first podcast, didn't we talk about taking notes and, and making yes. observations? This is, this is why you do it. So you can basically plan out the next year, the next habitat season habitat management season what you're doing and what your deer herd is telling you that they need or telling you that they need more of um, and how to change and manipulate things or stages of your farm to improve it all Uh, i think we talked about it in june or july kind of a summertime management it was take a breath take a moment and look at what's happening around you um walk into the habitat we oh it's on the film it was on film number four review we talked about going into the timber harvest and looking to see how deer are utilizing it we can do that now from the tree stand during deer season and see what time of the year they're keen in on this or bedding here and doing this but it's super important that we actually take notice and do that because we need to make a better hunting season and set up Next year, we always want to improve. We always want to make additional changes and tweaks during the off-season or, or habitat management seasons, we like to call it. So, one of the first things, because we're always, I mean, if we've listened to this podcast, we probably have planted food plots. And what can we do? Now we're, we're, we're actually sitting over the pod, or plots 
I about said setting over the podcast. Setting over the plots. You probably haven't done that a lot during the summer. You've worked on them. You've planted them. You've maybe done some Monitor summer scouting. Show camera, yep. But now we're actually setting or around the food plots a lot more. And so it's really a good time to understand what's happening in our food plots in ways that is good or bad. So one of the things, obviously, is you probably have a grazing or exclusion cage out. You can kind of watch and see just how much deer are feeding on your food plots. And if you're sitting on the food plots, you're sitting there and you're watching how many deer are coming into this food plot before dark. And if you're seeing a huge amount of deer, let's say you're sitting on a smaller food plot that's an acre or so, and you're having multiple doe groups come in, there's probably a chance that that food plot is getting overbrowsed, especially if they're doing it on a regular basis. So we're watching our food plots on the hunts that we are sitting over. We're trying to figure out how many deer are coming into that food plot. And we're watching them both with trail cameras and from our tree stand. And if we're seeing a lot of deer and then we're noticing we had great turnips and we had great oats and we had great wheat or whatever the food plot is, the fall fall food plot, and we notice it green up and start growing and as soon as it gets a couple inches tall, the deer are really browsing it, that tells us we're, li- we're short on food. Or we have a high, we're short on food because maybe the habitat's terrible or we have a very high deer population. So there's a couple ways you can handle that. You could shoot more does or you can do more habitat improvements to where you have more forage available. The other thing is, and then see this one a lot, when you plant your soybean fields and you're like, man, I'm, I'm planting soybeans because I want standing grain. I want to have I want to have bean pods to hunt on during deer simber. But your bean pods are getting eaten while it's still green. That tells us we have some hungry deer. Or, or we could look at it and say, okay, well, if you've got the option, um, or, or you just have corn, you have corn fields. Yeah. And deer are foraging on corn early season, you know, that might be a, an indication <clears throat> weather's turned, it's super dry, your beans aren't palatable enough, or you've got too many, you've got too many deer and the beans are not as palatable anymore. In comparison to that corn. So look and and watch what the deer are foraging on. It will tell you so much as to what you need to do as a deer manager. And whether that's increase food plot acres because y- your native browse is great. Or, I, and I would say most likely, increase your native browse. But it is that time of the year when native browse uh, or annuals are less and less palatable because most are making seed so deer may not be foraging they're making that transition it's just funny how how creation works and this is when acorns start to drop and hard mass start to drop right at that that switch that same time frame um god god did it right when when everything else palatable and vegetative started to go bad acorns started to drop but anyhow watch what deer are eating you can't control acorns but if they start to flood into your food plots, watch what they're starting to pick first if you do have diverse food plots. And if they're foraging on things when, that are seem to be untimely, like green pods or just uh, ripe, not ripening, but just drying out or semi-dry corn, you're, you're probably needing to change some things within the habitat to make those improvements. I saw this one a couple of years ago. Speaking of white oak acres, is... We did a lot of scouting that summer, that late su- late summer, and knew that we had a, a big acorn crop. Guess what? When the acorns fell, the deer vanished, but for a very short period, and they were back on food plots. What did that tell us? That told us that for all the acorns that fell... That you did have quality. The deer consumed them very quickly. Yep. And it's a, whoa, we have way too many deer. If If our deer population is eating the naturally occurring one of the biggest productions of food during that time of the year when they're eating it up in a very short window and they're eating something that occurred to where it should feed the deer throughout the fall and into the winter when they ate it up in a few weeks we have way too many deer well and that's the thing as as a hunter 
you're probably sitting back in your food plots mid to late October that time thinking, sweet, I've got them coming back to food plots. It's going to hunt easier. This is great. But as a land manager with that, you've got to play that both roles of that and say, okay, I understand that, that this is good for me in a hunting situation. But in reality, is my deer herd in good enough shape fat-wise, fat reserve-wise? Have they built it up to be able to get into and through the wintertime? Because now – after they've crushed all those acorns, they're going to come and crush your food plots. Yeah. You might not have enough. That's the question. Okay, if they ate the acorns that quick, how long how long are my how food plots going to last? Yeah. And it's just it's pitiful. Then your food plots start looking like overgrazed pasture. Mhm. Mhm. And plants that are overgrazed aren't nearly as healthy and don't have as great of a root system. And so there's a lot of problems that occur when you have a, an overpopulated deer herd. Um, the next thing, so we're also, so we're looking at food plots. We're also looking at the native species, um, and your old field or your native warm season grass patches or whatever it is that's, that's covered, that's not trees and it's not food plot. Um, so we're talking old field management, native grass, prairie, whatever it is. And we're looking around going, okay, what is the composition? Am I seeing a lot of grasses? Or am I seeing a lot of blooming goldenrod and asters and sunflowers? Right, what am weed. I seeing? And because if we're looking out across it and we're seeing acres of grass, we need to do something a little bit different to tweak it to where we can have some diversity out there. Have a few more goldenrods blooming. Um, have a few more uh, rag ragweed or herbaceous plants so it's not just all grass grass is a native grass is a wonderful habitat management tool and product of it's great a, landscaped a but push, it's a portion of a type of it, it, it's supposed to be a part of your your overall environment your overall habitat but not should be a large portion at, at qdma at uh <clears throat> dr Craig Hart Hart golly dr craig Harper's talk, I think he talked about 30 tips or something like that to better yeah. habitat. Old field management, do not have over 30% grass in your old fields. Yeah. There's and no that's reason in why. Wildlife specific. Like, yeah. for me, we like a little bit more. I know I do in my pat, in my native warm season grass places because it's, uh, I can, I'm going to have cows in there. So I need a little bit more grass of those warm season grasses. But that 50%, um, is I still don't want to have 70-plus percent of native warm season grasses because all then I have is just a lot more cover but not a lot of food, and I want a mixture of both. Um, and so, yeah, having, having, looking at it and saying, okay, what makes up? And the best time to look at that is during hunting season because if you go back in February and let's say you're anywhere north of Missouri or kind of Kentucky or whatever – there's a chance you had some heavy snowfall and a lot of that grass falls down and it's not as easy to identify. Well, yeah, you can't tell quite <clears> the <throat> composition. Or, or if you are if you have the ability to look over an overgrown field, hunt over one, and you, you've got a good pair of binos, watch where the deer bed. Watch what they're bedding in, in and around. Is it little saplings, little groves of plum thickets? Is it in the little pockets of native grasses? Or is it in tall standing... Um, Forbes, like whether it's like winged elm or ragweed or whatever, something that's standing tall. What is it that they're bedding in? Because you may need more of that, or it just and you becomes can, a hunting strategy. You know, you want to focus in on those pockets at this time of the year. They may switch. You may come back to that stand and watch deer later in the season choose a different type of vegetation within this old field to bed in or against. And and that goes with. Even while you're tracking deer into these thick areas, be paying attention to where all the rubs and scrapes and, and the beds are. I think how many guys do you know that track deer in southern Iowa or northern Missouri or the Plains country where they track them into these cedar thickets, they call them, and it's like a mix of native grasses and shrubs. And then you have your um, scattered cedars. They're like, this is why we like cedars. They're bedding up against them. But that's, a, that's not a cedar tree monoculture. We're fine with the few scattered out in the native grass pockets. Uh, and that's where you see a lot of beds in those areas. But you don't see them 
as much in the straight acres and acres of seed tree monocultures. So it's definitely important. Watch those. I love hunting CRP fields. I think I just blew out because I got so excited with that. I love hunting the prairies, the C- the CRP thickets, where you have good stands of native grasses mixed with forbs, mixed with woody species, because a lot of deer use those during the fall, and a lot you can you can sit <laughs> in those deer. You can sit on those, and if you have like mowed trails out through it, oh my gosh, it's so much fun to hunt those. Or, or for the people who don't have those, it's a one, two, three year old clear cut. Yeah, it's a very similar type of deal. You still have the the mixture of forbs, grasses, and brambles, and young early forest coming back. But watch what the deer are doing and where they're selecting to bed down on a day. And it could be a take note of cloudy day versus a sunny day versus a cold day versus a warm day, and watch how they change. Um, because they will change throughout the entire hunting season. If you have the luxury of being able to watch them like that, take note of that. It, you will become a better hunter and a better woodsman because you're understanding what deer need and what they're selecting on a day-to-day basis. So if you find that they are selecting in one area, certainly over another, manage for that. Improve the amount of acres that those deer are choosing of that vegetative type like that cover type, improve it for the next year. Take note. Um, make sure you can replicate whatever happened in that area and offer the same thing. And maybe you put it closer to a bed, I mean, to a food source. Maybe you say, okay, I see that they're bedding over there, but reality, they're not getting to my food plot until after dark. Maybe if I do the same thing there as I do 100 yards, 200 yards off my food plot, I'll solve my problem. That's right. Another thing in those native grass areas, or and you, if you can look over them or see how the deer are going through them, notice if they're hanging out on one edge more than the other. If it's a if it's a larger area and you're going, boy, they're not using the middle much. That's probably a pretty good sign. You need to add some more diversity, some better edge to that, to where you can maybe go in and plant some plum thickets, or go in and do a little bit of light dormant season disking to try and promote more forbs um, or you have some other woody species you plant some other woody species in there maybe it's not a plum but you plant fir oaks or whatever it is to try and add some diversity to that area to where maybe they'll use it um, more than they are right now or during hunting season Um, another thing to look for is when you're trying to monitor okay do i have too many grasses do i have too many forbs Look around and kind of see. This is a. This is you can even do this right now because um, there's a lot of really cool things happening in the in the outdoors right now with with where we're at in in this stage of the year. But uh, monarch butterflies migrating back through kind of as they're getting ready to head back south uh, down in Mexico, South America. If you have too many grasses, you're not going to have a lot of these goldenrods and the asters and sunflowers and all these other ironweeds. Flowering species. Flowering species to where you have the bees and the butterflies coming in. Butterflies are everywhere right now. But if you go out in a patch, a, a, a bedding area, and you're like, man, I'm not, I don't see that. That's probably one indicator that you have a lot of grass. Yep. And... A lot of grass means you have great cover, but you don't have a lot of food. Um, and a lot of those grasses, once again, shocker, but diversity. Big blue stem and any grass don't stand up to winter weather very well. So if you add some of these forbs, these goldenrods and um, <clears throat> sunflowers, you get a little better or a lot better structure to support the grasses that and so you can withstand cut plant, another one that comes to mind, um, that stand up to the winter weather better to where if you mix those in with your grasses, they support the grasses um, to where you have all kinds of standing cover but also get the forage value during the winter or during the summer. So that's another great thing. Be looking around. Look for the small species and what they're using on your property. Do you have a lot of quail coming in? If you have quail on your property through hunt season, you have pretty good habitat because they're going to seek out, and quail habitat is very limited um, across the landscape. So if you're seeing quail on your place, 
figure out where they're staying because there's probably a pretty good, when you think about it, Matt, think about my farm. Where are we typically, where did we have quail last year? Always up top. Always up right top, up gate. front. But then where did we find um, alpha? Not an alpha. When we, we found that buck, dad found that buck dead. Yep. Where was he dead? He was yep. in the brush, in the yep. thickets where the quail were. That tells us that was probably a pretty good secure area. Uh, we that made had a, adequate cover for the both of them. And we know that, okay, yes, there's, 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 similar, there's more similarities than differences in quality cover for quail and deer. Which is crazy because one is a couple ounces, where one's a couple hundred pounds. Yeah. But they still choose relatively typical, I mean, similar um, habitat vegetation types to uh, bed down and find as secure. That's right. Another thing, you got anything else on well, the old field? I would no, not on old field. I think a one one other thing is if you have this old field or. Um, kind of this grown-up area that's kind of old field, kind of just thicket. If you kind of see it where it was, if over the years it was really popular, really popular, really popular, that's where a lot of deer came from, and then you're now into it going, boy, they don't use it like they used to. That's a pretty good indicator you need to change something and go back to the way it was. You, Maybe it's... By the end of hunting season, hopefully you will have an idea if you need to do a dormant or a growing season burn or yeah. or. This is the only time we really recommend it, but possibly even disc throughout portions of that uh, tall native grass stand to promote more forbs. Or if it's really grown up, maybe you're going to have to bring in some sort of forestry mulcher and rip it back up. Never I think know. of Seth Harker's farm where he's got the big clear, clear cut. cut. Yep. And he's like, they don't use it like they used to. Well, that, it, yep. needs, it needs a rip roar and fire through or it or open. a ripper yep. uh, or a grinder. So definitely uh, kind of for us, I think – the hunting is is fun because we're out there trying to really take advantage of all of our work, but it's also a time to really just sit back and it's more of a learning experience and just kind of look and say, okay, they still aren't using that area much, and it's a, it's supposed to be a bedding area. We need to add more sunlight to the forest floor to maybe get it growing thicker. Um, one thing you can look at through the winter, like we talked about it with Ryan Kirby is there's a lot of vegetation during the summer when you were in there hanging sets, and then all of a sudden you return in November and it's all on the ground. What's that tell us? We have species that once frost hits, they go dormant um, or die off, and there's not a lot of good cover in there. So how can we change that? You know, this maybe is a, a, poor, <coughs> a poor analogy, but I'm going to say it anyways. You know, uh, like when I'm you almost spend, scared. When you spend like a lot of time at home and – your wife's like, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? Like your honey-do list just grows and grows and grows. You're like, oh, yes, just, just add it to the list. When we're in the tree stand, the more deer we see interacting with the, the products that we do, the habitat types, the food plots, the more our to-do list or habitat to-do list or our deer to-do list grows because we, we are learning every single time that we're in a deer stand and hopefully, if you're doing all the, the similar types of practices on your property, you will begin to learn and watch this as well. And then, basically, you're just using the deer, the, the species you want to promote um, as a guide for what it is you need to do in the future. Uh, it's, it's that simple. Learn while you're in the deer stand. I think the next one is, is huge. What time of the year or time of the season? We hit on this, I think, last year uh, with Seth Harker, actually, in a podcast. What time of the year is your property best? What time of the year do you have most of the deer or, or, or a lot of deer using your property? What's, like, the peak time to see numbers? And, and let that guide you and tell you, well, that's probably because you have this food source. Maybe it is white oaks and you see a lot of deer early season. Or maybe you're great at food plotting and you have the only or the highest quality of forage and tonnage into December. So you get this just massive flocking of deer to your property. Well, that's going to tell you, okay, during the early season, I have a limiting resource. I don't have much of white oaks. I don't have many hard mass trees. I need to promote them. I need to get more. I need to manage them to make my property a full year-round hunting 
Mecca, whatever you want it to be. But understand that when you have the most deer on your property, that's the peak time for you. If you want to make your property hunting, hunting property the best throughout the rest of the season, you've got to understand what is lacking. Take note of that. That's right. Yep. Did you say, so I think our deer, to me, during the fall, during hunting season, when we're out there watching all this and we're going, okay, what is going on? What is what what is lacking? What is, is a benefit? To me, one of the most frustrating things of all of it is to do all the work to then have our top hit listers vanish mm-hmm. and it happens that's that's tough that's tough to, to me see. that's happened a lot growing up <clears throat> and it could not even be a habitat thing it could be a corn pile thing or it could be a monster food plot thing or it could be it chased a doe and that's it hung out for a couple of days and unfortunately just got shot or something's happening on your side of the fence that you're not aware of uh mm-hmm. dogs are coming through or or whatever it is so many factors. something's happening the so the and this is the last thing we want to happen for a landowner, a client, a friend who works hard to improve the habitat for deer to just move. Whenever that happens, automatically the question is, what's happening there that's not happening here? How can I fix it? And if it is a habitat thing, maybe it's a uh, the best thicket. This is where the bedding thickets really come into play for us because a doe in in I'll put this in my opinion. And what I really, truly believe is that during that time of the year, October, November, whenever for us it's October, November, late October through early to mid-November, is does seek out the thickest cover they can find in their home range, in their core area. And that's where they hide out to try to avoid getting pestered by bucks looking for receptive does. And... If that thicket occurs on the neighbor, there's a good chance that several of my does or several of the does in the area go to that. So that could be a logging operation. That could be um, somebody else doing a lot of cutting, uh, timber stand improvement. Um, but for us, that ain't going to happen in many instances from here on out because we have these bedding thickets to where we have so many of them scattered around that there's a lot of deer that bed around them or in them. And uh, we have the best secure cover. And secure being the key word. We haven't pushed them. We haven't hunted them. Um, Like we're not hunting right up close to them. We always hunt them, but we hunt off of them or in between them. um, And to where the deer feel very secure going to them. And then also um, it's just the best cover for them as well. So those are definitely some things to add to the mix as well. I think overall... Beyond a, I'm going after this deer, or I want to, I want to try and you know, kill a doe out of this doe group, as you're going out, whatever day-to-day objective it is. Put your, your learning eyes. That sounds like a stinking kindergartner teacher or something like that. But there's always something to learn when you go to the deer stand. I think a lot of people do. They take in. You know, that peaceful setting, you know, it's a relief. It's not stressful. I'm not trying to make any deer hunt more stressful. Oh, I need to be learning. I need to be doing this. Let it come naturally. But use that time to your advantage to make your property better. Learn from the deer. And it's that simple. And, it. and it's not rocket science either. It's it's what can I learn from their behavior to make me a better manager, and just and it's just studying their behavior. Whether that is it can be through trail cameras if you can't get out there, you know, but a couple times a month, you know, that's fine. But there is still something every time you do go out to the woods to learn. That's it. Yep. All right. Here's your would you rather? Would you rather go into this fall? September 14th, I say you can either hunt every single hunt, morning and evening, and it has to be on a food plot. Or, Ugh. or, I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. <laughs> you say every single hunt, morning or evening, 
anywhere besides a food plot. So here in the Ozark Mountains, it's going to be a lot of timber hunts. It's going to be a lot of like bedding thicket hunts or or grassy fields, but you can't hunt a food plot. <clears throat> Golly, man. <laughs> that's like, that's, that's weighing too many different things because I like late season hunting. I don't really want to be hunting bedding areas at that time. I want to be hunting food sources. <laughs> yeah. but I like the rut. Uh, and your target is a mature whitetail. Okay, if that's the case, my target is a mature whitetail. Here's my plan. I'm hunting a food source late season. Yeah, that's it. That's what I, I mean, was going to say. I, I, there's there's so many variables to that stinking stupid question. <laughs> However, I again, this is the numbers game. Food trumps all. They will listen to their bellies in that time of the year, especially a mature buck. And if you have Here's secure the- areas with good food plots here's the one hiccup to that plan if you have to hunt a food plot every single time you go out well i might just not go out <laughs> yeah I'm you may gonna, have I a, seriously well I you would. may have an overpressured food plot or food plots to where late season rolls around they ain't using it anyway you you put me into a situation where you made me <laughs> have a monoculture mindset that's it that's it <laughs> but seriously i would i would limit my time in the woods until late december that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You said I think late September. Late December. De- December, yeah. Yep. And even early season, you're probably going to have some pretty good chance of yeah, success. Yeah, I'd take, I'd take a couple stabs It would get it, pretty lonely during the rut, I think. You may have a big yeah. one come piling out. I'd, I'd hunt late morning, something like that. Yeah. But, yeah. I would, I would I, I I my I hate bets. hunting food plots in the mornings during the rut. Like, I, I know that you can. It can happen. But to me, it's like. Twiddle thumbs, twiddle thumbs. Eleven thirty one runs out, and you're like, "Go!" Oh. Excuse me, I think you mean more of sleep, and it goes back to one hunt a couple of years ago. Of, uh, oh. <laughs> you were catching Z's on the floor of a redneck. That's right. Adam, Adam, Adam. That's right. Get up here. There's and sure a, enough. And we didn't shoot him on that time. I don't think because yeah. he did. I shoot him that time because uh, yeah. he came out twice. If you remember right. He, he came out And I twice. will say, in my defense, that was after a week and a half long of filming <laughs> everybody. Hey, and then I there. finally got my time. So. Been there. No, you haven't. Not yeah, like huh? me. Oh, not like you. Yeah. So, anyhow, you were asleep on the floor of a redneck blind. That's it. But, nonetheless, the deer didn't make it out of the food plot. Well, barely. On the edge of the food plot. On the edge. Yep. Um... Would you rather <clears throat> Would you rather <clears throat> hunt your farm just just your farm not not a portion of the lease or anything just your farm or the 1200 a 1200 acre piece in Illinois this year <laughs> Knowing what's on there now. I'd rather hunt a 1,200-acre. Yeah. Because I haven't had a lot on the farm. I've got two good bucks, but I, they're kind of in a spot where I'm like, eh, I don't know what's going to happen. You know what still happen. needs to happen is, <clears throat> oh, gosh, what's-his-name show up middle of the season and hang out on the north portion, or the, not the north portion, but the the uh, entrance to the farm that that portion i'm a little worried about mule <clears throat> i am too he hasn't he has not shown up been around nothing no no Ah, uh, yeah no, i'd no. rather go to illinois no not probably. mule hippie mule's gone no mesa's gone mesa's gone mesa's gone. mule mule and too hippie never showed up both of them both of them son <clears throat> of a gun or um the real Jacked up guy who's got the no, well, not jacked up, but the trip double main bean buck yeah. that was there last year. He never showed up either. But we've mm-hmm. done a lot of different things. We don't have any mineral ore um, attracting out, so we really don't have a great feel. We've got a pretty good idea. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It, it they have such small home ranges in the summertime. Yeah, like it, it wouldn't surprise me. Velvet shed. A couple more come in, like oh, that's okay. Well, that's where they are. And, got them. And the other thing about it is. Last year, we didn't have food plots because it was so dry. Ugh. 
we didn't have a 30-acre food plot. This year, or we didn't have the bottom fields in food, really, because it just never grew. This year, we will. We've got 30 acres of the Stratton Cattleman's Treasure going in to where there's going to be a huge attraction. And then we have all the additional food plots on top of that. So yeah, we really don't know what's going to show up, but... It'll be interesting. Anyway. All right, guys. We we thank you for joining us for another Land and Legacy Habitat Heroes podcast, and we will catch you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering the podcast. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Mm